Hi, Mike. Thanks for the introduction. So uh, for those of you that uh, suffered through or survived my blood bank lecture, rest assured this is something completely different. So uh, yeah, confessions and disclosures. Uh, in the past, I have been kind of a paid spokes monkey for Edwards Life Sciences, who makes one of the uh, transpulmonary devices. So it's been a while, so they feel like rehiring me. I'm certainly amenable. So what am I going to talk about today? It's one, first off, just the basics. What is extravascular lung water? And you'll see this abbreviation through this talk, EVLW, extravascular lung water. Uh, next, what is the transpulmonary thermodilution technique, uh, abbreviated TPTD, and the applications of this, uh, pulmonary, particularly pulmonary anemia and ARDS, which I'll spend most of my time, and then some emerging uh, applications of this technology in non-ARDS conditions. And if I talk really fast, um, a case scenario at the end, though I'm not holding my breath. Okay, things I'm really not going to talk about today, though these do impinge on the, the topic in general. I'm not going to, I'll spare you my commentary on the general uselessness of CVP and wedge. I'm um, not really going to talk much about shock. And really, this not, really isn't a fluid response and resuscitation talk. It's really more on, on, the, really tr on the lung water side. So why have you folks, I'm guaranteeing almost probably very few of you have actually heard of the concept of EVLW, transpulmonary thermodilution. So why is that? So um, just as of about literally about 60 minutes ago, I punched up my good friend Google Scholar, punching transpulmonary thermodilution. And since uh, 2011, which is when I first started lecturing on this topic, uh, there are now new publications 2,490. I would say conservatively, less than 5% of these come from work done in the United States. It took me to this, the seventh page of Google Scholar results to finally find one publication that was done in the U.S. And you'll see things from Tunisia, you'll th th see things from Taiwan, from Japan, every country in Western Europe, but somehow we on this side of the Atlantic haven't quite caught on. Kind of sad, in my opinion. I'll try and sell you on why that's a bit of a tragedy in critical care. So what is extravascular lung water? So frankly, it's basically it's all the liquid in the lung that's not in the vascular or pleural space. So of this, most of it's actually intracellular. So the fluid of neutrophils, macrophages, endothelial cells, that actually comprises about 65% of non-vascular lung water. Then you've got interstitial, alveolar, lymph, and airway water. So lymph is about 10 to 15% of the, the vascular uh, contents of the lung, mucus and surfactant, and then edema. And between mucus, surfactant, and edema, it's calculated to be about 20 to 25%. And that's actually what we largely, when we talk about particularly pathological conditions, that's usually what we're referring to as extravascular lung water, this kind of combination of mucus, surfactant, and edema. So what's normal? Okay, so normal physical conditions, and those, when you get from this literature, this number comes up in a repeated fashion. Normal extravascular lung water is less than seven mils per kilo of predicted body weight. So say, you know, much of this literature recently has been coming out of France, so let's call for the average Parisians who still have the average 70 kilo person walking around. Uh, call that about half a liter. Uh, let's see, I'm rounding up and calling for average Baltimorean. Certainly when I was down in Louisiana, Average was a little higher. 
I will call it 700 mils. And just for frame of reference, uh, about three shots worth. So under pathological conditions, though, this seven mils per kilo can get extraordinarily high. When you've got someone that's got rampant pulmonary edema, you're talking somewhere in the realm of 40 to 50 mils per kilo. That's somebody who's drowning. So another way to kind of think of this is basically lung water is maintained on a dynamic basis. You've got incoming fluid and cells just being brought in along with the plasma for which there's a physiological uh, gradient or reason to exit the vascular space. And then you've got basically your lymphatic system that's actively working to pump it all back out. Now what happens, imagine in the scenario of an acute lung injury. While you have all these fluid and cells coming in in much of the same rate as they did previously, all of a sudden now you've got increased permeability, you've got changes in hydrostatic pressures. The oncotic gradient may or may not be changed. Alveolar clearance certainly goes way down as a lymphatic clearance. So under conditions of pathology, you can see why the, that balance between efflux and influx changes, and we start developing more influx of water into the lung. And all that leads to extravascular lung water. It's just a, just a different way to think of a different mechanism for pulmonary edema. So how do you measure uh, extravascular lung water? Well, gravimetric measurement is still the gold standard. You basically measure the w lungs wet, and then you squeeze them, and you kind of put them in a press and squeeze all the water out and get the dry weight. And surprise, surprise, wet weight minus the dry weight is your extravascular lung water plus your blood volume. And you can estimate the pulmonary blood volume off the hematocrit. So extravascular lung water, wet weight minus dry weight minus blood. Pretty that simple. Problem with that is, um, yeah, you mentioned taking the lungs out and squeezing them. Uh, this is an ex vivo method. It's not really terribly practical for most of our purposes. We can't really take our lungs out of our patients and measure the lung water that way. So, alas. So, alternative? Transpulmonary dilution techniques. The original ones that were developed back in the 60s and 70s used a uh, double indicator solution. They used uh, endocyanine green for the most part um, and uh, cold fluid. And finally, somebody got really smart and realized, well, you know what, we can actually spare our patients this dye load and actually use just cold fluid. So here are the mechanics. So thermodilution is basically, again, kind of a more recent derivative of the dye dilution techniques, again, based upon Stuart Hamilton equation, as you remember your cardiac physiology. This is just cardiac output is equivalent to the quantity of the indicator over the concentration of the, inter the derivative of the concentration of the indicator over time. So basically, your cardiac output is essentially equivalent to the area here under the curve. This was done with initially done with dye clearance, and then people got smart and realized, hey, we can do this with uh, thermal boluses instead. So how does transformal thermodilution work? Well, there's an injection. Uh, Historically, or at least by convention, it's done in a, from a superior site, either subclavian or jugular. The thermal bolus travels to the right side of the heart, the lungs, left side of the heart, down the aorta, thermal, and down to the femoral artery, and there's a thermistor um, in, the therm in the femoral artery, which measures basically the changes, or basically the inverse temperature curve. So picks up you know, standard temperature here, you do the injection, the blood flow passing through that by that thermistor gets colder and colder, then warmer and warmer, and picks up and gives you that curve. 
So another way you can think of it is basically is blood flowing, blood flowing through a series of compartments. You do the bolus injection in the, basically in the central venous system, right atrium, right ventricle, pulmonary blood volume, left atrium, left ventricle, and then out to the, the measurement site. So think of it as just kind of blood, throwing, blood flowing through different mixing chambers. So again, just to, to recap, cardiac output here then it winds up being essentially an inverse temperature curve plotted over time. And I'll, I'll spray most of the math, but just cardiac output times the blood volume. And this is your uh, blood, essentially the change of, sorry, the temperature of the blood and the temperature of the injectate, and then the change of blood over time. Basically allows you to kind of get a very nice, uh, consistent cardiac output measurement. And this is no, no stranger to those of you who have worked with any kind of PA catheter. Same notion when you do a thermodilution cardiac output ring through from a pulmonary artery catheter. Same principle applies. Now, these are some, some terms that probably need to explain uh, because these are used then to derive other volumetric measurements. You have what's referred to as the mean transit time, which is basically the time it takes half the indicator to pass through, through the artery. So basically half the bolus passes to the detection point. And then the downslope time, which is basically um, an approximation of how long it takes essentially the bolus to be cleared. So how <clears throat> the area in the curve from basically peak of, uh, peak of thermal change at, measured by the indicator to, fact, to the point where it normalizes. So if you, have, <clears throat> if you buy into the notion that now you have a cardiac output, you have an, an, a measurement of how much it takes half the indicator to traverse through the system, and then how long it takes it to clear, now you can begin to have the capacity to do some really fun volumetric assessments. So you have what's called the total interthoracic thermal volume, basically the entire volume of fluid within the chest <clears throat> is, circling, is <clears throat> equivalent to the cardiac output multiplied by that mean transit time. You can then get, you can approximate what the largest mixing chamber is. And you think of the thorax, the largest mixing chamber is, of course, the lung. So your pulmonary thermal volume is then just your cardiac output times the downslope time because clearance of the thermal bolus, essentially normalization temperature, is determined by the largest mixing chamber, being the lung. Now you just start, now with those two variables, you just doing, start doing a bunch of mixing and matching. You can start coming up with the really fun ones. So you come up with the what's referred to the global end diastolic volume, which basically tells you the total amount of fluid within the heart all four chambers. So your total, essentially total maximal cardiac preload. And sometimes you'll see this referred to as JEDI, which is Global End Diastolic Volume Index. So you're seeing, you know, you work with some German ICU folks who ask, what's the JEDI? What's the JEDI? Uh, no, it's not a Star Wars reference. Uh, they're just, you know, being, you know, Pico geeks. So... Now with those, again, you start being able to drive more and more. So we know the interthermal, interthoracic thermal volume of the chest. We know the pulmonary thermal volume. And now we now know the volume of blood actually in the heart. So we then can derive the volume of blood in the chest. It's basically a constant measurement of basically just 25% uh, above G, uh, the global endostatic volume. So then if you're able to determine the amount of blood in the chest, and you know the total amount of fluid in the chest, the difference between blood and fluid, then, is the extravascular lung water. 
And then you can also just take it one step further, and you would be really obnoxious. Uh, the PVPI is actually an index of how much extra, the ratio of extravascular lung water to pulmonary blood volume there is, which basically gives a notion, basically an objective measurement of essentially pulmonary leak. How leaky is your pulmonary vasculature? All right, so I mentioned there are actually two companies that uh, now make devices that can uh, measure these indices clinically. Uh, the original founders, Polzin, out of Germany, and then uh, about as about five years ago, uh, Edwards Life Sciences out in California decided to get in the game. So they both make very nice kits. Uh, this is the the one from Pico, a catheter here, thermistor there, introducer kit, uh, guide wires, and so on and so forth. They now the Pico Two now has this nice LCD screen that can look has this, creates to a standalone module looks like this, and it gives you a nice kind of very you know European German printout of. Index, Jedi, extravascular lung water, SpO2, in a very in a straightforward fashion. Um, you know, the American version, Edwards version, again, very similar. Nice little catheter here, thermistor here, sorry, uh, in, introducer port there. Uh, has, a, has a nice little setup here. A human figure really washed out nicely here. Uh, basically hooked up with femoral artery here, injection site up here, slaves to a little box up here. And there's you know, the Edwards version is even even probably more uh, you know Apple influenced. Uh, clearly, touch screen uh, gives you a nice little index here. If your if your veins are dilated, actually the blood vessels expand. If your veins are constricted, they squeeze. I uh, like uh, as your lung water increases, actually this water level in the lungs rises, rises, rises. Uh, it's nicely kind of animated for those of us who have really t limited attention span. But they're pretty much about you know largely clinically they're about the same. It just depends where where you have access to one or the other. <clears throat> so questions that you know, people often ask about transplant thermodilution um, that I've, I've had at previous lectures is the most common ones. You know, can the injection port for the thermal bolus, does it have to be a subclavian or an IJ? Can I use something else? <clears throat> uh, the answer is actually right now, at least a couple of sites in the past years, you can actually use some different sites. Um, with some correction formula, actually ephemeral line can be used, so you have to... Uh, Put in manually, correct some of the volumes. There's actually, uh, chemo ports actually been used a couple of times to, to do this. So it doesn't have to be kind of your classic uh, superior central line. Uh, can the temperature sensor be placed anywhere in the femoral artery? And I think that is probably the biggest barrier to the uptake of this technology. It's basically been the dependence of a femoral artery thermistor. And the answer is at least as of the time of writing this, not yet. So right now we're kind of dependent on the femoral artery site. Though I do know that they are—they've been working for a while under uh, on brachial or radial uh, artery sensors, which I think would make it a lot more adoptable. Uh, how sensitive are these measurements? And actually, it's uh, quite uh, quite sensitive. Really nicely uh, done study published out of Germany, published about last year, and that actually after BAL, uh, when they left you know any kind of fluid behind after a bronchial alveolar lavage, they were able to detect that rise in volume with this system. Uh, down to a precision of about 30 mils. And the common one is, you know, do pleural effusions, because that's, you know, technically extravascular lung water. Does that, you know, throw a, a wrench in the entire calculation? Can throw it off completely? And actually the answer is no. Uh, it's actually, it really does measure basically um, water below the level of the visceral pleura. Uh, nice study a couple of years ago that actually did... Uh, 
large volume thoracentesis pulled off, you know, over a liter multiple cases and found really no difference in the measurements, even pre or post removal of that of that large quantity of uh, extra uh, organ organ uh, fluid. So there are of course limitations. It does tend to slightly overestimate lung volumes in those of us that are you know healthy and walking around. Tend to underestimate in disease, which why you need to do a little bit of correction. Uh, as you can imagine, because this does depend on a cardiac output measurement, when you're at the, in the floor of cardiac output, your numbers really aren't reliable. When you get a, when you need a nice, nice uh, almost parabolic curve, and if it's nearly flat because you have no cardiac output, it doesn't give you reliable measurements. Issues like aneurysms, uh, issues that would prevent anything that would prevent transpulmonary blood flow, like really, really high levels of PEEP, uh, huge pulmonary embolus, or other reasons for anatomic shunt are going to give you some uh, unusual numbers. So how can we apply this? And you know, the most rational place to apply it is, of course, to ARDS. I'm going to show you some data here over the past, largely over the past decade, showing uh, how we can use EVLW measurements to better diagnose ARDS, to prognosticate, potentially, though this is still not yet fully come to fruition, guide therapy. So why might EVLW be useful for ARDS? Well, I think any of us have been doing any kind of critical care for a while know the definition of ARDS, even post-Berlin definition, still has a whole lot of gaps in it. And there are you know, ongoing discussions of how do we create a better definition of ARDS. So radiological criteria are terrible. Uh, nice study by Gordon Rubenfeld in Toronto back in the 90s showed that uh, among thoracic radiologists, they had been an agreement in what actually constituted the, a, a successful X-ray for ARDS in about 50% of the time. And PEEP and FiO2 are criteria are terrible for the diagnosis of ARDS. You can you know, slide somebody in and out of the definition of ARDS just by tweaking their PEEP or FiO2 a little bit. So... I, I love this study. I have, I have no idea how they got permission. Uh, this was done in, in Japan. They basically took a bunch of patients who were, I kid you not, about to die and put in a PICO and did extravascular lung water measurements. And then they went to the morgue after they did die and weighed their lungs. Had, you know, again, never would have been able to pull it off in the States. I, I'm absolutely fascinating. Uh, God bless the Japanese for consenting to this. Uh, but they actually, what they were able to find was these EVL, EVLW measurements we've been talking about had a beautiful correlation with postmortem lung weight. So as you had more ex measured extravascular lung water, your base, your lungs were heavier, more waterlogged. They proved it. Uh, same group, and God bless them, uh, were then able to get uh, basically 2,000 autopsy lungs. Uh, 500 normals and uh, 1,700 those of lungs with autopsy confirmed diffuse alveolar damage. And they basically converted, based on the prior study, they converted lung weight to extravascular lung water index, and based on the whole, with the assumption that their, uh, the, the equation from their prior study would hold. And they found that extravascular lung water was almost twice that in lungs that had, that had pathologist confirmed diffuse alveolar damage. Uh, normal was about 7.3, which held to our previous standard of normal. DID was almost 14. So, nice, created kind of really nice, clear scatter plot. Found if you used an EVLW cutoff of greater than 10, 
like the diagnosis of diffuse alveolar damage. Again, pathology confirmed, version of ARDS, about 80% sensitivity, 81% uh, specificity. Crank it up a little bit more. If you had an EVLW of almost 15, almost 100% specific for diffuse alveolar damage. And considering we've been flogging, you know, flailing around for years trying to find a good diagnosis, reliable way to diagnose ARDS, it's pretty appealing. So I'll quote Daniel Schuster, one of the you know, fathers of uh, early definition of ARDS, that says it should not, should not be diagnosed on a diagnosis of exclusion, but instead depend on some direct measure of lung injury. Well, lung water seems like a good place to start. So other questions we can ask is, can we differentiate between cardiogenic and non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema? How can you, lung water is still lung water, right? And then I think the central question for most of us who actually practice in this area is, can we diagnose ARDS earlier? Is there a you know, more physiological measure that we can use to identify these issues? So a uh, really nice study out of the uh, Monet Jean-Louis Taboul kind of factory in, in Paris found that if they indexed pulmonary blood volume, they could actually discriminate hydrostatic edema from ARDS. And this was confirmed uh, basically by echo, extensive echocardiography in terms of those that had cardiogenic edema. They found that if you had a pulmonary vascular pulmonary ability index, remember that uh, lung water divided by pulmonary blood volume, if you had a really leaky lung, it was basically 100% specific for it being non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema as opposed to cardiogenic. Again, smaller study has yet to be thoroughly replicated, but certainly really thought-provoking. Work. This is work that uh, you know people I trained with out in Oregon did, and one of my co co fellows when I was there. Really nice study that found that actually, if those that that had risk for acute lung injury, massive transfusion, early sepsis, inhalational injury, so on and so forth, are classic ARDS or ARDS risk groups. Uh, that if they got an extravascular lung water measurement on day one, it highly predicted the progression to frank ARDS if they had elevated extravascular lung water, even before they become, became markedly hypoxic. So again, if you look at the receiver operator curves, our classic P to F ratio criteria, hovering down here, first day one extravascular lung water index up here. So even before people become markedly hypoxic, the lungs start to leak. And maybe this a, a potential window of therapy uh, again, and those that had higher lung water at that first 24-hour period, much, much more likely to actually develop ARDS than those that didn't. Again, if you maintained your lung water here, circa 7, circa the normal range, much less likelihood, as opposed to if you had the class of lung water of about 14, 15. So can it prognosticate? And work done, again, by the, by the same group out in Oregon a few years before, they found that Particularly if you had a persistence of, of heightened extravascular lung water, this measurement over 20, these, these folks were much less likely to survive compared to those that were able to hold closer to normal. Uh, this group, this was, result was then replicated by a group out in Scotland. Uh, found similarly, non-survivors had an average lung water that was clearly different than those that were able to survive. And median lung water for non-survivors, about 16, about 10 for survivors. And these were originally small groups, but just um, as less than two years ago, 
Again, uh, Xavier Monet and Jean-Louis Taboula in Paris. Nice retrospective study of 200 ARDS patients. And among the predictive factors for survival they found in this ARDS cohort was extravascular lung water. 7% increase in risk of death per mil per kilo of lung water. So every, for every mil you got higher and higher, your mortality went up by about 7%. Highly statistically significant. And again, they found, particularly if you had, and this number of 20 seems to come up in a number of different uh, small studies, if your EVLW is greater than 20, mortality in ARDS was about 70% compared to those that were, that were less. So, an interesting notion. Now, of course, does it actually influence anything? Can, we, can, you know, can extravascular lung water measurements be used to guide therapy? Well, of course, you know, we know that getting the lungs dry is important. Um, you know, it's tr- sure, certainly it's not a, not a new concept. Uh, the ARDSnet, uh, you know, fact trials, so on and so forth, it's been, it's been out there. Oh, it's kind of here. Um, what's actually kind of alarming is when you kind of look at this literature, the notion of using EVLW as a parameter for guiding therapy is actually not new. Eisenberg and Friends, prospective randomized study in 1987. This is what happens when you're going to delve into this literature. You realize there's some gems out there that have been completely ignored by the medical community. So 48 patients in shock. Uh, this back in the days when we still used the PA catheter. Uh, PA catheter-guided therapy versus EVLW-driven. Measured wedge and EVLW every six to eight hours. Nice protocolized fashion. And found that of this group that had sepsis, those that had ARDS, if those that had a, a vascular lung water greater than 14 but had normal wedge pressure, if you manage them in the, by the EVLW strategy, they should reduce mortality significantly. No correlation between wedge pressure and extravascular lung water. No big shock. Poor correlation of XRVs to extravascular lung water. And what they found was they thought, again, back in 1987, before any of this really kind of became really commercially available, it was safe. Hasten the resolution of pulmonary edema and improve outcome of acute, uh, acute lung injury. Got buried. About five years later, 100 patient study. Again, vascular lung water versus wedge. Measurements every eight hours. Striking difference. PA catheter group on the vent for 22 days. Measure, measure and treat by extravascular lung water, nine days. Same thing, ICU days, 15 versus seven. Chris thinks it's probably been thrown out with the bathwater along with the use of the PA catheter. It certainly suggests that following this parameter may actually be a better guide for therapy. And this has led to studies or protocols that have been directed out there. Few have unfortunately yet made it to publication phase yet. But protocols such as this one basically directing uh, the balance between fluid resuscitation, presser use, uh, diuresis, and so on and so forth. Uh, so hopefully within the next couple of years we'll get some more of these protocolized studies for the uh, management of pulmonary edema via this EVLW kind of basically directed protocols. Not quite out yet, but hopefully soon. So besides just thinking of the lung, can this technology, can this thermodilution technology be applied to other parameters? And I think it can. This is actually one I believe that... Uh, uh, is being studied here right now is the application of this kind of technology to the management of acute, of acute necrotizing pancreatitis. Uh, 
So the study again, uh, this is, I believe, out of Austria. They found that 50% of patients with necrotizing pancreatitis had severe intravascular volume depletion. Uh, well, that was not basically measured by other kind of conventional me- uh, measures. Treating the intrathoracic blood volume correlated well with changes in cardiac output. So they concluded that in volume resuscitation with patients that are at high risk to have major capillary leak, pulmonary edema, again, your severe pancreatitis, that this was a much safer strategy for volume resuscitating these acute pancreatitis patients than conventional manager, uh, measurements in pancreatitis like a hematocrit or CVP. I think this study is being, uh, I believe there's this larger study that's being carried out in this very same issue, which I believe we're a site here in the surgical ICU. So, training study in basically in, in a SICU, where they followed EVLW to, me- to basically uh, determine whether or not to volume load, volume reduce, or diurese patients. Uh, 22 patients, they found that was highly effective. It, basically, it modified therapy in 22 out of 40 patients, I should say, and those changes were found to be effective in 18 of those 22. And surprise, surprise, the vast majority of them actually got you know, these measurements suggested increased diuresis, and they improved. And, of course, no big shock to anyone. Static pressures like CVP or JEDI were not terribly useful in distinguishing. So recent study, and this has, uh, I think, become more and more of a, a topic of interest within of this technology is actually is burn patients, I mean, just because of their predilection towards capillary leak and a very challenging population to manage from a hemodynamic standpoint. So Spanish group, uh, very nicely done, basically started a protocol, started off with intravascular uh, volume by blood volume index, and a nice basic decision tree based upon lactate, extravascular lung water, loading or not loading. Came with some very interesting conclusions. So while maintaining, using this technology to maintain either slightly low or basically near normal range blood volumes, they were able to significantly increase cardiac index, facilitate the clearance of lactate pretty quickly, and at the same time, never drive lung water to the point where it actually became dangerous. So their conclusion was, and I think it's probably reasonable, is that they can, in burn patients in particular, they can detect hypovolemia and mark a marked hypovolemia, if you look at this, during the resuscitation phase, which may, may not be reflected by conventional parameters like blood pressure or urine output. And then this could allow them to resuscitate them by clearing lactate and preload without the risk of pulmonary edema in burn patients. Very interesting application. Uh, similarly, it's been done in, uh, there have been a couple of cardiac surgery groups that have done this, and this is a group out of Holland, and nice little kind of fairly straightforward algorithm. They were able to find a basic reduction in catecholamine vasopressor use, uh, shortened, well, a little bit, duration on the ventilator, and got them out of the ICU about half a day earlier. Uh, now my, my favorite recent study, I, I just picked this one up for this, for this time go around. Um, you know, got it, apparently scorpions in Tunisia are a problem. Uh, so severe scorpion envenomation is apparently known to cause cardiac, uh, cardiac failure and pulmonary edema. So then this group of, out of Tunisia found, uh, basically published on three patients that had severe scorpion envenomation. And uh, with, with the addition of uh, using the EV, uh, 
transpulmonary dilution system, able to monitor change in cardiac index, and found that they could reduce extravascular lung water, and use that as a, as a guide for basically how resuscitating them from uh, the cardiac toxicity of scorpion venom. Uh, just kind of fun. So, you know, the Tunisians are doing it. Why can't we? So just to wrap up, what's the case for extravascular lung water? Well, realistically, patients can drown with 200, 300 mils of extra lung water. There aren't any great surrogate markers for it. And I would hopefully made the case that extravascular lung water is clinically relevant. It potentially can distinguish cardiogenic from non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. It does predict progression to acute lung injury or ARDS in patients at risk. It predicts ARDS mortality. And at least preliminarily, there, uh, at least, and in the past, there have been EVLW protocols that really have proven to improve more, shown, been proven to improve mortality. And maybe better things are in further ahead. More goal-directed therapy, more protocols, better fluid management in multiple clinical scenarios. So, last little bit. Overall, small amount of extravascular lung water is normal, uh, about 7 mils per kilo. Anything excess is pulmonary edema. While gravimetric measurements are the gold standard, dilution and thermodilutions are, are highly correlated with lung water. And while the EVLW is best established for ARDS, I would say it probably has the potential to diagnose, prognosticate, and even guide therapy. All right. So I will... Now that I actually I do have time, I didn't talk as slow as I usually do, uh, I'll run you through a clinical case that actually I dealt with when I was, when I was a fellow. So we had a 62-year-old gentleman with community-acquired pneumonia. Pretty grisly-looking chest X-ray. I think most of us would consider this on the uh, ARDS spectra. And uh, my, my mentor and I put a put a pico on him, and got this. Yeah. So, and this is, yeah, this is the, uh, the brief audience participation portion. So, cardiac index is low. Uh, Jedi again, global endostolic index, cardiac preload is low. Uh, SVV is high, EVLW is high. Anyone want to guess what kind of the clinical situation would be? Go ahead. I'll take in challenges. John, go on. That's it. I see you. Yeah. So this guy was actually intravascularly dry. <clears throat> Despite the fact that his lungs were full of fluid, his SVV is high, his, uh, basically his preload index is low, and his cardiac output is low. This guy's basically intravascularly dry, uh, but basically, but his lungs are basically are completely full of water. So, what do you do? What's the next step? How do you manage him? Oh, by the way, he's also in shock. What's the next step, Mike? Not yet. <laughs> right. Well, I don't know if I give the. I don't think I give the diuretic just yet. 
So I guess what we did is, despite the fact that he was hypoxemic, despite the fact that his, his lungs were already somewhat full of water, we actually gave him a volume challenge. Because our, our idea was, and this is actually work that has, uh, has been done out there, I didn't uh, show it to you, is that basically, while you're at the low portion of the Starling curve, small changes in preload don't tend to take off in terms of producing more extravascular lung water. Uh, where you can, on the other hand, create a significant gain in cardiac output. So for a big gain in cardiac output with preloading, you can actually only induce kind of mild changes in, car in extravascular lung water. Oh, all right. So that were the rest of his measurements. We gave him some fluid. Now all of a sudden, his mean arterial pressure is 75, his cardiac output is now, index is now normal, cardiac preload's nice, SCVSL, lung, lung water still up, SCV is up high, and he's still really hypoxic. So it's, what's the clinical situation now? What's that? I guess so. Is he, is he in shock anymore? No. Still in ARDS? Oh, yeah. So now you can make the argument that he's basically closer to the, the flat limb of the, of the cardiac, of this uh, starling curve. Oh, that's all got smunched. Okay, so half a day later, his SVV is now normal. His Jedi is normal. His lungs are still wet. You can make the case now on the flat portion of the starling curve. So his lungs are less leaky, but he's now got an excess of preload, right? Jedi, which I told you is your cardiac, cardiac preload index is high, his SUV is relatively normal. He's got fluid to give. So I actually started diuresing him, despite the fact he had been in shock less than 12 hours before. After fluid removal, okay, his index did come down a little bit. Is, you know, cardiac preload, a little bit on the low side, SUV, okay, the point where he might be fluid responsive. But his extravascular lung water came down from circa 20 down to low teens. And his PDF ratio almost doubled. So small changes in lung water could actually make a big impact. Right? We only dropped, we dropped the extravascular lung water about four or five points, and his PDF ratio practically doubled. So making make the case that you can use then this extravascular lung water to follow resuscitation efforts as part of just one of your other points of calculation in terms of how much to resuscitate or, or not. Simple way to put it, simple way to think about it is you can just stop giving fluid when the EVWD starts to climb. Because as your extravascular lung water starts to climb, it suggests that you're basically you've hit the flat portion of the starling curve. So fluid, more fluid resuscitation doesn't accomplish anything besides just driving more water into the lung. And you can stop uh, removing fluid if you're trying to diarrhea someone with ARDS once the EVLW stops decreasing. You just can't get any more out. All right, I guess we're done. Thanks, guys. Thanks.